We've looked at hope and hopelessness these last uh, three weeks now, and looking at this little mini-series, a gospel mini-series, we took a break from the book of Hebrews, and we've been walking through this. In week one, if you weren't here with us, I'm just going to recap a little bit. Back in week one, we looked at Noah and the problem of sin. You know, we can't really start with the gospel of good news without first looking at the gospel of bad news, right? The gospel can't be good news without the bad news we first have to arrive at. And the bad news is that sin is a big problem for us. And we looked at the man Noah and his family and that God uh, punished sin and sort of a foreshadowing of this great judgment that we have to pour out on sin even at Calvary. But in salvation, we see that God provided also a means of rescue. And God instructed Noah to build an ark that he wanted to remind God, God's people rather, God wanted to remind them that he loves them very much. And he gave Noah this instruction to build an ark of salvation. In week two, we looked at Moses, and that was last week. We looked at bounty in the wilderness is one of the things that we talked about, and this reminder that God's love is present even in wilderness circumstances. We looked at manna given from heaven that God provided for them in a time when they needed provision. We then ended last time with Jesus as the bread of life. You guys remember that, right? From John 6, we saw Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Don't look at man, look to me. I'm the bread that God has sent from heaven. And so I just thought that it would be helpful to go from Jesus talking about the bread of life to us talking about the Lord's Supper, taking the Lord's Supper together and celebrating that this morning. The bread that is given for us, the blood that was shed for us the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to do in talking about the Lord's Supper is look at the Last Supper in Luke 22. Now, this is kind of cool. I'm going to share something with you that I didn't even know this until last night, and that is that just about all scholars agree that the Last Supper, the Last Supper in the upper room was either, check this out, this is a consensus across the board, a rare thing, right, in our day and age, that the Last Supper was either on April the 6th A.D. 30, or on April the 2nd, A.D. 33, and I think the latter is probably more reliable. Do you know what today is? The anniversary, I believe, 50% chance at least. The actual anniversary of the time that Jesus went into the upper room with his disciples and took the Lord's Supper. Now, whether it's today, and this is a cool anniversary, or we're jumping the gun by four or five days, either way, that's kind of cool. That's kind of neat. I mean, on the same day, I don't know, you guys don't seem as like blown away by that. I've kind of blown away by that. I think that's amazing. So I'm so excited about this, that we are celebrating a true anniversary. Last week, we looked at baptism at length with four baptisms, and it was spectacular and wonderful and a blessing. But baptism and communion, the other ordinance that God has given us, the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> are not what saves, but they are pictures. They are portraits. Like, there wasn't magical anything happening there, magical anything happening here. These are pictures. By the way, we're going to have to scoot this table out, guys, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, because I'm losing a little bit of weight, but I'm not that thin quite yet. So, um, anyway, we're going to take the Lord's Supper at the end of our time. But those things are not what saves, but they are pictures. We went on our honeymoon to a little tiny island called St. Martin. Does anyone know where St. Martin is? It's in the Caribbean, and it's a really beautiful island. Go ahead and throw that first picture up there. I took this plain picture, not a plain picture, but a Anyway, I took this picture uh, of right off of the, the little back porch of our uh, place that we were staying. We were having breakfast, Brooke and I were, and uh, this plane comes in, and it's right, I mean, if you don't know this, it's right by the airport. I mean, right there. People usually walk back behind there, the airport where the planes come in and land and take off, and there's just a little chain link fence, and those idiots will go and stand right behind it while these jet engines are taking off. You know, it's like uh, they're just falling into the ocean. It's like, well, you stupid. What are you doing? Anyway, to go to the next picture. 
This doesn't look like a real photo, I realize that. But I took this with my phone at the time, and uh, it looks like it's photoshopped. But that is exactly the picture that I took. I just happened to grab it at the perfect time. And that's a mind-blowing picture. And I remember that day and taking that and thinking, whoa, that's a pretty cool picture that I just took. Uh, now, that's just a picture. That's not the actual event, right? We can't hear that jet engine. We certainly can't feel that jet engine. But you can see a picture of it. And so you believe me when I say that it actually happened, right? But it's just a picture. This is also a picture taken at our honeymoon of, of me um, on a sailboat and, and without a beard and much younger. So um, it happened. I, I didn't have a beard at the time and I was a lot thinner and a little skinny dude. And I've outgrown both that shirt and those pants. Thank goodness I grew out those pants because, wow, those are very white. And I shouldn't have taken them in the first place, but, you know, the past is who we are today. Anyway, you can take that down. Again, those things aren't meant to be the real thing. They're pictures, and we know that, right? Pictures aren't the real thing. They are pictures of the real thing, not the actual events themselves. And yet, we can look at a picture and remember an event, right? You can look at it and say, man, or maybe you look at your wedding photos and say, man, I can remember that like it was yesterday. You may not be able to feel all the same things, but that's what pictures do. They bring back memories. The Lord's Supper is a picture, a picture that is meant to be observed, a picture that is meant to be admired, a picture that is meant to be remembered. Because we're not just looking at the picture, right? We're looking at the memory that is attached to it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember today with a picture. Baptism last week, the Lord's Supper today. And as we remember, we also reflect and we renew and we rejoice. And we're going to look at those four things, remembering, reflecting, renewing, and rejoicing a little bit later in our time. If you're taking notes, we'll get there. But first, Let's read our passage. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Luke writes this. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to look at some cool things as we walk through. And I think that we're going to talk about some things here that maybe you've never even heard or seen before. And I'm really, really excited to look at this passage with you guys. But starting in verse 14, and we walk through line by line here at Fellowship, if you're a guest of ours, just we want to be people of the word. And so we're going to extract what we see here and let it be for us. All right. So in verse 14, right out of the gate, I want to point out something really simple. In fact, not even, before, uh, not even in verse 14. If you look right before that, you can see if you're just skimming really quickly, starting in verse 7 and on, you'll see the word Passover a few times. And that's because Jesus had sent his disciples to go and prepare the Passover. He said, go get things ready. I've already made some preparations. You're going to see this miraculous thing, this guy carrying water, which was a woman's job in that culture. And yet God clearly gives them this indicator that I've set up this place. We're not even going to spend the time on that, although that's, there's some really cool details there. Nevertheless, they find themselves in the upper room and they are wanting to take the Passover. Jesus is wanting to take the Passover with them. And that's why it says, when the hour came, verse 14. And when the hour came, the, the hour for the Passover, he reclined at table and the apostles 
with them. The hour. And again, this is the hour. A lot of time when we hear that, especially when we looked at the book of John, the hour was the hour of his crucifixion. And maybe there's a double meaning here, but I don't really think so. I think it's really referring to the hour that Jesus is looking forward to, which is the hour of the Passover, which is, we know he's looking forward to it because of what verse 15 says. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired. That means I, I really, 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 really have looked forward to this. I earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Why do, does he say, I have earnestly desired? And again, when he says earnestly desired, it's I have desired upon desire is what he's saying. I've so strongly looked forward to this exact moment. Why? Well, they didn't just sit down and take out the bread and the cup of wine. They were sitting down for an annual Passover feast. And this is one of the things we're going to talk about at length this morning. I don't know about you, but I get this image when I think about the Lord's Supper of them going up in this room and sitting down and reclining, and then they take out bread and they take out wine and they just have like a little appetizer. <laughs> that's, that's it, right? No, no, no. The Passover was a big feast. It was a big meal. In fact, traditionally, they would get one lamb and it had to be finished. So they would, it would be a big get-together, not just a little family get-together, but a big get-together because they were saying, we got to finish this lamb. Can you imagine if that was the rules for your meals? Man, that's a tough one, right? Maybe for some of you guys, it's like, no, I actually wish that there was two meals like that. I don't know. But what we see here is that they sat down and they were going to have not just bread and wine, but an annual Passover feast. Now, I'm, I'm going to assume that you know nothing about this, just because I don't want to assume any information. And, and to be honest, I didn't know a lot of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. But the Passover feast would be, first of all, a long feast. It would be hours long, and it could only happen in Jerusalem, in these city walls, okay? Right on the outskirts of the temple where those lambs were to be sacrificed. They had to have it right there in the city. And that should tell you something, that people came from all over the land of Israel to this one central location to have this feast. In other words, it was popping in Jerusalem at Passover every single year. A lot of people were there. Jesus had eaten the Passover several times. I mean, he was a Jewish man, and so likely annually he had done it over 30 times. But this one was special to him. He says, I've earnestly desired. Why? Because it was the last one. It was the last one. Now, Jews still eat the Passover, but I'm here to tell you this was the last one. This was the last Passover, the last supper. It's not just the last supper because it was Jesus' final meal. It's the last supper because it was the last one. It was the last Passover, the last Passover. John MacArthur preached a sermon on this passage, and he said that he titled it, The Last Passover, the First Communion. The Last Passover, the First Communion. And I think that that's a really good word picture that we can imagine in our minds. It's a Passover feast. It was a long feast. As I said, hours long. They would gradually, what was the meaning of it? They were gradually unfolding with these different elements and these different foods. They were unfolding gradually the story of redemption that God had given them many generations prior. Gradually unfolding this redemption. I want you to see a picture of what may come to mind whenever we think of the Last Supper. Put up that Michelangelo painting. You may think of this when you think of the Last Supper, of a bunch of dudes sitting around a table, uh, and, and they're like, you know, first of all, you're thinking, why aren't they sitting on both sides of the table? That's not very good for social, like, conversation. That's kind of what I think of. Uh, but this is not really realistic as far as what this, this looked like. Go to the next image. This is more realistic. And I don't know if you can see that, but they're lounging. I mean, it says they were reclining at the table with feasts. And there's a reason for this, by the way, because it represented uh, rest and peace in Abraham's bosom. So they would say that we don't, we're not even in a hurry. We're not even sitting down regularly. We're just chilling. 
We're relaxing because we have rest and we can enjoy this special feast. And they had a few other feasts where they did this, reclining at the table. But you'll notice there, first of all, there's a lot of people around them. And it's very possible that it wasn't just the disciples that were there, but others as well, maybe preparing the feast for them. And yet the disciples are the ones that we read about that took the Lord's Supper with them. You'll also notice, I don't know if you can tell that, at the bottom of that, and I know it's kind of blurry, you'll see a lot of elements, right? You don't just see a couple of things. You see a whole bunch of food and a bunch of pitchers that have a bunch of liquid in them. Now, this is one of the things I'm going to talk about at length this morning, and I don't know if you're fascinated by historical things, but this is really interesting to me, and nothing that I'd ever really thought much about before, but in Passover, the feast was centered around not the lamb, but around four glasses of wine that they would have throughout. They were sort of like checkpoints of the Passover meal. You can take that image down. The first glass of wine would be served. And by the way, these glasses of wine were uh, not just diluted, but doubly diluted because they would drink four of them. This first glass of wine, and even in the current Jewish tradition, is called uh, chedesh, and it means holy. It means sanct. The prefix sanct means holy, set apart. And it starts it off. So they would give them this first glass of wine, and it was known as the cup of sanctification, meaning it's a set-apart cup. Why is it set apart? Because they're saying, and they would raise that glass and say, this day is special. Let us begin this feast. They would have the first glass, and so they would drink the first glass of wine. Jesus passes a cup in verse 17. That is not the cup that he would say symbolizes his blood. That is the first cup, okay? It's so neat. You'll see it. in verse 17, look at it. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it amongst yourselves. That's what he's giving them the first cup that is the cup of thanksgiving for our gathering. This is not the cup that he will refer to just a moment in verse 20. He passes the cup. In verse 18 it says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Traditionally, after they served this first cup of wine and they praised God for this gathering, they would sing the Hallel, which means praise. It's from Psalm 113 and 114, and they would simply, believe it or not, praise. <laughs> they would praise God, remembering why they're celebrating this. Then they would serve the second glass of wine. And again, this is strung out over a long span. They would serve the second glass of wine. This one's called the majid, and it means narrate. What do you think they did then? Someone told the story. They told the story of the Passover. They're, thinking, they're remembering this whole festival. It's like you do maybe the Christmas story on Christmas morning. You sit down, and maybe your dad wears that robe that he probably should have thrown away 15 years ago or so, and then he begins to read the, the Christmas story. This is what they would do. That second cup, as the first one was the cup of sanctification special, this was known as the cup of judgment because the whole story was about the fact that God judged his enemies. God judged these people's enemies. And so what is the story? Again, I don't want to assume any information. And while we're talking about the Passover, it's really important that we know what the Passover is. Again, generation and generations and generations and generations prior to this, they were recognizing that there was a time when God's people were captive in Egypt. They were slaves. And God miraculously brought salvation, not by the hand of an army, but by his own hand. He's a God of love, a God of salvation, and this is what they were celebrating. God brought plagues upon Egypt. Ten of them, the first nine looked a certain way, but then there was a final plague. And while the first nine were annoying and maybe difficult and strenuous and maybe brought some death and decay, the tenth one was different, the final plague. And it was that the firstborn of every household in Egypt, every household in Egypt, the firstborn of every household would die at the hands of a death angel. God then provided one way of salvation from this death angel, a substitutionary death. You can escape death 
but there must be someone or something that dies instead of you. And so he told them, you may take a sacrificial lamb. So each family would gather a lamb and provide a substitutionary death. Now hear me say this, Israel did it, Egypt did not. But please hear this, God was not playing favorites between Israel and Egypt on the first Passover. Every person in Egypt had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it was Israel that was spared, not because they were his boys. They were spared because they had a sacrificial lamb. They were spared because someone else or something else rather died in their place. They had a substitute, all of Israel had a substitute, and none of Egypt had a substitute. The first Passover. They took that lamb and sacrificed it. They ate the meal of the lamb. They had a bread of provision and haste, unleavened bread. They, they would eat it, even historically after that, they would eat it with all their clothes on, with their kind of like what you would eat it with running shoes on because it was a, a meal of haste. Like they had to get out of town quickly, and that's how they commemorated that. With the lamb, they were told by God to paint the doorposts of their homes, the crossbeam. And so they would paint around their doorposts. Why? Because it was symbolic of the fact that their home had been covered by the blood of another covered by the blood of a substitutionary lamb. And so the death angel, believe it or not, passes over. (laughs) It's really good the name Passover. The death angel passes over these homes because someone or something rather died in the place of the one in the home. God's salvation. And each subsequent Passover meal, they had a main course. They would eat the unleavened bread. They would eat bitter herbs to represent the suffering that they underwent in Egypt. They would eat a lamb and they would eat vegetables. The narrative focuses on redemption from Egypt, but also longing for future redemption in a Messiah. And so the Jews would eat this looking back, but they would also eat this looking forward to a time that God would once again bring salvation. That's wine number two. Number three, the third cup would be poured after the main course. And so they'd have the second cup and they'd eat this big meal. Hey, just track with me for a minute. I know this is a history lesson, but we're going to get to something really cool in a second, right? Wine glass number three would be passed around. They would pour it after the main course. A piece of unleavened bread would then be in hand. It would be broken. It would be distributed by the host. That's what happens in verse 19. It says, and he took bread. This is after wine has already been served. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thanks would be given. That's what Jesus does. Bread is distributed. Another example of God's provision and love. And it's at this point that Jesus would then look to the third glass of wine, traditionally, by the way, known as the cup of redemption, that they would say, and Jews would look at this and say, God has done it before, and we're looking forward to the time that God does it again. Hello. Do you hear that? The third glass of wine, Jesus distributes and says, this is the cup of redemption. Don't we hope that God saves again? That's so neat, man. And so this is when Jesus would say in verse 20, this is my blood. He says, a new covenant in my blood. Redemption. Wine glass number four. And I'm skipping a whole lot of stuff about washing hands and doing a lot of reading. I hope you're okay with that. The fourth glass of wine was the wine glass of conclusion and praise. They would once again sing Hallel. A cup of praise is what it is. Modern Jews even poured this cup and begged God for hope. They beg him for redemption. Isn't that crazy? They, even today, the Passover is being celebrated in a special way, and they say, bring the prophet Elijah and bring salvation once again. Mm. It has already come. He has already come. In him we remember today. So if you're taking notes this morning, let's let the rubber hit the road. I know that was maybe kind of dragging a little bit, but we're going to get to some really cool things here, okay? So the first thing is we remember. We remember our substitute. 
When we look at the Lord's Supper, and as we approach Easter next Sunday, today being Palm Sunday, I know we're jumping the gun on Thursday night when they would have taken this supper together, but I think that this is a special thing that we can do to commemorate that, especially since the anniversary. I think it's awesome. So we remember our substitute. Look at verse 15, looking back. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, I have desired upon desire. I think that this is so cool because I don't think this is just, you ever have a, a special meal going uh, later that night and you're like, man, I wish work would hurry up and finish because I know I've got like my favorite meal ready. I, I'm, we're doing steaks tonight and I just can't wait for this meal. Jesus did not just long for this meal for a day. He did not just long for this meal for the week, for the month, for the year. He did not even long for this meal, I would say for his life. I believe that he longed for this meal since Genesis chapter 3. I think that he, in his infinite pre-existence, longed for the day that he would say, and from the moment that sin entered the world, I think that he would long for the day that they would represent the, celebrate the last Passover where he would pay to end sin of the world. He longed for this day, man. He earnestly desired it where he would come and liberate the captive. Verses 19 and 20, look down. And he took bread. What are we remembering? It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said this to them, said to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember our substitute. Here's what I want you to see there. That Jesus changed the meaning of the bread. He changed the meaning of the bread. A new Passover. This cannot be overstated. The end of the Passover marks the end of a millennia of ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. We've been looking at Hebrews, right? And we talk about priesthood after priesthood after priesthood. And you guys are like, oh man, I'm so glad we took a break from that because I was getting priesthood out. We talk about lots of priesthood. We talk about the dietary restrictions and all these rules and all this striving. And bringing in the last Passover, Jesus is putting to death all the striving. He's changing the meaning of the meal. The end of the Passover marks the end of all the old symbolism of the former salvation. All these ceremonial laws, the end of the, all those things. Jesus says, do this in remembrance. Listen, he gives them the bread and says, do this in remembrance, not of Egypt. Do this in remembrance, not of being rescued from Egypt. Do this from now on in remembrance of me. No need to look back to Egypt. From now on, this is the day that we're going to look back to. You know neat that is? That's why we do this, not in remembrance of Egypt, but in remembrance of that day. He changed the meaning of the elements. He brings new symbolism, a new salvation, the dawn of a new day, of a new rescue. In taking that last supper, Jesus is emphasizing that no longer are we simply commemorating that God once passed over sins, but we are celebrating that once and again and for all time, God has passed over sins through a new and better Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at verse 19 once more. We're going to look at each individual, okay? 19, the bread, then 20, the cup. Look at 19 again. He took the bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is given to you. My body, which is given to you. I just want you to see the language there. The bread and the cup. Now listen, when he says, this is my body, there is a belief called transubstantiation 
Transubstantiation. I always get, always, always want to add another ism or en on the end of that. It's transubstantiation. That's such a hard word for me to say. That doctrine, and you may have heard this, you may not have, but I want to talk about it. It's the Catholic belief that when the priest blesses the elements, they transubstantiate, meaning they literally become the body and blood of Jesus. That's transubstantiation. And so they say, we're going to bless this, and you're literally eating the body and blood of Jesus. And I'm just here to tell you, it's not literally the body and blood of Jesus. When I say a prayer over this, it doesn't literally become, it doesn't change its form into the literal. Jesus also said that he was a door. He said that he was a cornerstone. He said that he was the head of the body. And Jesus is not made of cedar and his, his belly button in a doorknob, right? He isn't made of stone that you can carve something out of him. He says a lot of things that are metaphorical and symbolic representations of who he is, and this is an example of it. He's referring to himself as bread and wine, as symbolic, but as significant. So, what about the bread? First, the bread is his body. The bread is his body. Now, you may have heard a lot, and I've heard a lot, somebody say that the bread is Jesus' body broken for us. You ever heard that phrase, right? This is my body broken for you. Now, where does that come from? His body wasn't broken. Let me just, I'll just get out in front of it and say that. Jesus' body wasn't broken. The bread was broken. They always broke bread. That's how you distribute it, right? His body wasn't broken. The, where that comes from is a bad translation of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, which does say his body broken for you. But that verb was added later on by a, a transcriber later on. And so that, that verb should not be there is what I'm trying to say. What Jesus said is not, this is my body broken for you. What does he say? Look at verse 19. What's he say? This is my body given for you. This is my body that is given for you. According to their Passover, their, their law, the Passover lamb, which Jesus was, it couldn't be broken. The bones of a lamb, the Passover lamb could not be broken. In John 19, 36, when Jesus died, he died on the cross before they were able to break his legs. You know why? Because his bones couldn't be broken. For it to be a fulfillment of the prophecy, his bones could not be broken. He was bruised, yes. He was crushed. He was torn. He was pierced. He had wounds and stripes, but he wasn't broken. The emphasis of the bread and the body is not that he was broken. It's that he was given for you. What does food do for us? Your mouth's probably about to start watering, and I apologize for that. But what does food do for us? Food nurtures us. Food strengthens us. Food sustains us. Food reminds us to give thanks to the one who gave it. So what does it mean that Jesus is bread for us? Jesus invites us to partake of him in order that we would be nurtured and strengthened and sustained by him. That we would be reminded who gave him to us. Not simply as unleavened bread of Passover or manna in the wilderness, but as the bread of life sent from heaven Think about the Passover context here. The bread is no longer about God's provision then, but about God's provision in Christ now. Not for 40 years, but for endless years. That's why he says, it's my body that is given for you. Let's talk about the blood for a moment. That's a weird statement out of context, isn't it? Let's talk about the blood for a moment. A bunch of weirdos we are. Verse 20, the cup is his blood. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Listen, this just very quickly. The cup is no longer about the Passover lamb of old. It is about the final Passover lamb. It isn't a cup of looking back at Egypt and hoping something better would come along. It is the cup of looking to Christ and knowing that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
We no longer look back to the blood of a lamb. We look back to the blood of the lamb. In the Passover, blood was spilled on a wooden doorpost. But at the cross, blood was spilled on a wooden cross. At the Passover, the sacrifice turned away the angel of death. But at the cross, the sacrifice turned away the wages of sin, which is death. Do you see how the latter is just so much greater? Jesus is putting to bed the old, and he is introducing the new. Praise God. And that's what we remember. We remember our substitute. And remembering the sin that he died to destroy should lead us to reflect on the fact that we still struggle with that sin. And so number two, reflect on Jesus' desire. Reflect on Jesus' desire. And we've seen this already in verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired. I want you to just think about those words as we look at this. Reflect on Jesus' desire. Number two, I cannot begin to fathom what was in the heart of Jesus, the man. We emphasize a lot Jesus, the God man, the God, right? Man, he's so great. He's limited by nothing. Jesus was a man, okay? Jesus was a man who knew he was about to die Jesus was a man who understood what was coming. And he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. He says, before I suffer. How could he even eat? You guys have a hard time eating when you know you've got a presentation to do, right? He was eating before he was going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. What was in his heart? What was in his mind? Desire was in his mind. Tied up in this moment around the table were so many plots and characters and subplots and conflict. Millennia of longing for his arrival. And yet Jesus already knows in his heart what is to come. He bears a heavy burden that would cause him to weep and literally bleed in sweaty anguish. Because he understood as he's eating that meal, earnestly desiring, he understood that his nation would crucify him. He understood that his mother would weep at his murder site. He understood that his best friends would abandon him and hide in fear. He understood that Peter would thrice betray him. He understood that Judas, whose feet he would wash that same night at that same table and whose mouth he would feed, would sell him for cheap to his killers. And he desired to eat with them. The story of Passion Week can perhaps be summarized with one of the most profound things that Jesus ever said, and that is, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. What a Savior. Satan did not have the first word, and he never, ever, ever, ever has the last word. But at the end of his life, Jesus did not die surrounded by loyal followers. He died abandoned. And this is a very important reflection. And that's that God's salvation has never, ever, ever depended on the worthiness of the ones that he's saving, but on the love and grace of the one doing the saving. God's salvation has never, ever, ever depended on the worthiness of the ones he's saving. They were abandoning him. It has always been dependent on the love and grace of the one doing the saving. That'll preach, man. That'll hit us square between the eyes. Passover's reflection is that it was not the Israelites' ancestry, it wasn't the Israelites' good standing or their good nature that saved them in Egypt. It was only the blood of the lamb that saved them from death. But can I just say something? You are unworthy of that. You are absolutely unworthy of salvation. We all are. I am unworthy 
of the salvation that was purchased for me at Calvary. But God did not save us because we were worthy. He saved us because he is wonderful. It was only the blood of the lamb. And I think that there's a powerful word of reflection that we can consider here. As we reflect on the gospel, this mini-series of gospel, just like like an IV of gospel to us, right? And this Lord's Supper that we're going to take, as we focus on that and consider that, you are right to feel unworthy, but you are wrong to feel like you cannot receive him. You're right to feel like your sin separates you. It does, but you are wrong to feel that you cannot be reached by the power of the gospel. There's a wonderful reflection there. Don't you see that Jesus' best friends abandoned him? And that you and I abandon him every day with the same sin that they struggle with. The men have not changed. We struggle with sin. But Jesus did not die for his boys around that table because they loved him enough to not abandon him. He died for them because he loved them enough to never abandon them. And the same is true of every person in this room. Hallelujah. John MacArthur said, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you'd lived his. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you'd lived his. We are unworthy, but we are greatly, greatly saved. And reflecting on the ways that we have lived opposed to him and daily do should lead us to renew our commitment to him, which is number three. Renew your commitment, to renew our commitment. This is the goal. As we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering we're reflecting, but we're also renewing. And you may, again, come to this table and say, man, I just, I just don't feel worthy to take communion today. I just don't know about this. I just feel so unworthy to take the Lord's Supper. Yeah, no kidding. That's all of us. You should feel unworthy. But that, it is that acknowledgement combined with a repentant heart that is the correct posture to take it. I would say if you don't feel that way, you shouldn't take it. It's a renewal proclamation. That's what this is. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing proclamation that still and forever, we belong to Christ. Still and forever. This isn't just some religious thing that the church has been doing for 2,000 years that feels kind of cultish. It is a deeply intimate proclamation of your soul. The goal of our proclaiming isn't just to tell God. It is to remind yourself and be uplifted and nourished and say, I was bought at a price. I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus We renew our food consumption several times a day. Why do we eat food? You're like, because I love it. (laughs) We eat food because we are daily reminded that without physical nourishment, your body will decay. You need to be sustained. You need to be nourished. The same principle applies to your soul. This Lord's Supper may just be a tiny little cracker and a tiny little cup of juice, but it is a reminder that you are bought with a price and you are not your own. That is a renewal reminder. It is a nourishing reminder and it is food for the soul to come and eat, renew your proclamation and say once again, Jesus is my substitute. When we do that, the fourth and final thing is that we rejoice. We rejoice in our hope. Rejoice in our hope. I know, right? (laughs) Me too. Mm. When we sing about Jesus paying it all, which we did just a moment ago, Jesus paid it all. When we sing that, I just want you to understand, I heard someone say it this time, this way before. When we say Jesus paid it all, the Lord's Supper is the receipt. You take out the receipt and you say, yep, he sure did. 
He sure did. It's a good picture. In verse 16 and in verse 18, I kind of went over this quickly, but just at the end of those verses, you see that it says, I'm not going to take this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then later in verse 18, he says, until the kingdom of God comes. And so there's this future tense where it's like, God is going to do something later on, a final day when everything is made new. So looking forward into the future, Jesus says, I'm actually not going to take this Lord's, we take it more often than he does, right? He's waiting. He's waiting for a day when everything is changed. He's referring to Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. And I'm not going to read those verses, but I'll summarize them. John is having a vision, and it's about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this marriage supper of the Lamb is based on, you can just read behind John's writing when he's writing about this, but it's based on their marriage customs in that culture at that time. And in their marriage customs, there were three uh, initial, there were three primary stages. The first stage was betrothal, which was to us sort of like engagement, except their engagement was actual engagement. There was no breaking off that betrothal. It was yours. And if you did, that was not something that someone did very lightly. And so a betrothal, they would have a contract that was signed. And when that contract was signed, consider it a, what do you, what do they call that thing? A marriage license? Yeah, it was considered a marriage license. They signed a contract. And when that contract is signed, a payment is given. I'm purchasing. This is the final payment. And so that payment is given. And that that bride awaits the arrival of her groom, right? And that could be a while. In fact, it is a while because there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. And so the, the bride awaits the groom to come and finally end this betrothal period and begin this union. That's the first stage, a contract signed, a payment given. The second is a marriage parade. In this marriage parade, the bridegroom and his male friends will come and, and, and they would be anticipated and the bride would know when that date is coming and she would be adorned and beautified and prepared and ready to come out and walk out the door and ready to join the parade with her arriving groom. The third stage is the marriage supper. This is the celebration of the finally arrived unions. They've been betrothed. Now the marriage parade has happened. Let's go and party. The feast would often last for days. That's, why it, that's what happened at the wedding at Cana. You ever wonder why they ran out of wine? Because that was a party. They were partying, and it lasted a long time. Enter Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, with the same three elements in mind, betrothal, a marriage parade, and a marriage supper. I want, to hear, I want you to hear something. Guys, Jesus is the bridegroom. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. The contract has been signed. The payment has been given. Amen? The contract has been signed. The payment has been given. You, your betrothal began the day that you made him Savior and Lord, and we, like the bride, await the arrival of our groom. We await him. The second stage, his second coming, will be a parade of victory over sin, no doubt, and sin and death, no doubt, but also a parade where he comes to forever take with him that which is his, his bride, his church. He has prepared a place for us, by the way, with his Father in heaven. And then the marriage supper, which is what Revelation 19 is referring to. This glorious celebration that we forever belong to Christ. And I got a feeling that that wedding feast, that we will one day join in glory with our Father in heaven, our Savior Christ, the groom himself himself, I have a feeling that that feast is going to last a lot longer than the one in Cana. My point is, while this Lord's Supper is somber, it is one of remembrance. It is one of self-deprecating reflection. It is one of continual renewal. And those things may bring some somber thoughts. It must also be one of rejoicing. It is celebratory. It is a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what is to come. A few weeks ago, 
um, we went on a little vacation uh, down to the coast, and um, we had a, a unique opportunity um, through a family member to go, and uh, myself and my oldest son, Zion, our oldest son, Zion, we got to go to a basketball game, a professional basketball game for the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, so it's in the city of New Orleans. So we drove over from the beach in Alabama to uh, New Orleans, and we went to this basketball game. And Zion has never been, he's four, he, and he's about to be five, but he's never been to anything like that uh, at all, nothing even close to that. And so he was really overwhelmed. And finally we got to our seats, and you see this, I mean, taking it all in, this huge spectacle. Imagine being like a very small, <laughs> it's big enough for us, but imagine being this little, he's like, uh, you know, so... He's taking it all in, and, and we're really early because we want to see them warm up and just enjoy ourselves. And the, the players are down there shooting baskets, and they got, like, the ball boys giving them, you know, feeding them the ball after they shoot the ball. And then <clears throat> you have a few festivities that are happening in the pregame. And then I think that they might have done the player introductions, which yeah, they dim the lights, and it's this, you know, exciting thing. And then they have the, the girl come out, and she, she sings the, the national anthem. And so everybody stands. You know how that goes. You stand, and, you, and everybody is somber and quiet, and she sings, and she crushes it. And then everybody, what do you think they do? They uproar, right? They, they cheer. And Zion looks at me, and he goes, is it over? <laughs> like he loved it. And he's just like, they're clapping, so this is the end of the show, right? Is, is it over now? They've, they've played basketball. They shot basketball for a while, and then now there's like this big finality moment, and so he's like, is it over now? And I looked at him, and I was just, I laughed so hard because he don't know. And he's like, what? I said, son, that's just a foretaste. I said, like, the real thing hasn't even happened yet. You just got a small taste. Yeah, they're shooting baskets, but the game hasn't started. Guys, isn't that a beautiful picture of what is to come for us who are in Christ? We have a contract. It's been signed, sealed, delivered. The payment has been made. Praise God. But we are waiting for the parade. And the best is yet to come. And the marriage supper will arrive. And we will rejoice in that day. This is not a somber moment. We pray, we celebrate a baptism. You know, I love that. We clap. And I, I wish everybody would just stand because it's so amazing. We celebrate that. This is as amazing as that. It may feel a little different, but this is a celebratory moment. By the way, this is a picture of me and the boy. Go ahead. <laughs> Do you see that big smile on his face, man? That's a kid that realizes it's better than he thought it was going to be. Guys, I long for that day. When your loved one gets cancer and you know death is coming, you long for that day. When three kids get gunned down in a Christian school by someone that hates them, you long for that day. And life ebbs and flows. But when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, his whole point is, stop looking at Egypt. Look to me. And so today as we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember, 
I want you to reflect on the fact that there's nothing worthy about you except that Jesus has declared you so. I want you to renew your commitment to him. His love for you is not contingent on your work. It's contingent on his. He loves you. Don't beat yourself up when you take this Lord's Supper. Remind yourself that you are his and you are precious in his sight. Praise God. And finally, let's rejoice. Because one day, we're going to eat the real thing with the groom. And it will be a parade. And it will be an endless celebration.